Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Tuesday, February 6, 2024. A federal appeals court rules former President Donald Trump does not have immunity from federal criminal prosecution that he tried to overturn the results of the 2020 election. We'll talk about the case with Politico's senior legal affairs reporter Josh Gerstein. President Joe Biden says Donald Trump is behind Republicans in the Senate and House refusing to pass a $118 billion bipartisan agreement to aid Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan and bolster U.S. border security. President Biden calling on Senate Republicans to show some spine. A resolution to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas on charges he did not enforce immigration laws and breached the public trust by lying about how secure the southern border is fails in the House when a handful of Republicans join Democrats in voting no. Secretary of State Antony Blinken meets with the Prime Minister of Qatar on continuing efforts to broker a pause in the war between Israel and Hamas, combined with a deal to release hostages held by Hamas. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen testifies before the House Financial Services Committee on the Economy, getting a number of questions about proposed regulations to increase large banks' minimum capital requirements. And the FAA Administrator Michael Whitaker is before the House Transportation and Infrastructure Subcommittee on Aviation, saying Boeing is not delivering safe aircraft and promising to take steps to change that. An article at Politico begins, former President Donald Trump and indeed any former president may be prosecuted for alleged crimes they committed while in office. A federal appeals court panel ruled on Thursday. One of the authors on that story, Josh Gerstein, senior legal affairs reporter, joins us now by phone. Thank you so much. What was the legal rationale of the court for denying Donald Trump this claim of presidential immunity? Well, uh, the appeals court, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, essentially concluded that uh, giving Trump this kind of what he was requesting, absolute or near absolute immunity from prosecution for anything even sort of remotely related to his official duties as president um, would essentially be a get out of jail free card, that it would amount to putting him above the law and there would really be no mechanism to enforce the law against a former president um, other than impeachment. And then once, you know, someone has left office, it seems like that impeachment remedy isn't really very valuable. So uh, the D.C. Circuit said that they think the best view of the law is that once somebody leaves office, uh, they become an ordinary citizen once again, and they're subject to being prosecuted, uh, at least within the federal system, if somebody thinks that they've actually committed a crime while they were in office. And does the nature of the crime matter? Did they take into consideration the underlying criminal charges in this case? Right. So the underlying charges here stem from the 2020 election and from uh, then-President Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the election results and essentially to cling to power in the White House, either by allegedly fomenting the um, riot at the Capitol on January 6, 2021, and also through a variety of other steps around the country, including um, helping organize, quote, alternate, close quote, plates of electors that uh, might vote for him instead of the electors that uh, state officials had designated in uh, various states. Uh, The court didn't um, get into that uh, too much, although it, it did... Uh, note sort of the the gravity of the 
um, allegations that uh, the former president is uh, facing here. And it, it did also say, you know, that it was important that if a president took actions that arguably interfered in an election, that there needed to be some recourse for that. Uh, the suggestion was this went beyond just sort of a garden variety crime. Donald Trump's spokesperson says that he'll be appealing. What's the next step and the timeline? So the the D.C. Circuit panel, this three-judge panel, gave uh, former President Trump until uh, Monday to ask for some sort of emergency relief from the Supreme Court. Otherwise, this case will go back to the trial court, and presumably the clock will start running again for a potential trial that had been scheduled to start March 4th, but was officially canceled last week. It had sort of been impractical for various reasons. It was already clear that that would have to be delayed. Uh, and so we expect the former president to follow through on his statement and to ask for relief from the Supreme Court to basically freeze the status quo here until the Supreme Court considers whether it wants to take up uh, this issue in full. I would say also the decision from the D.C. Circuit as significant for the substance as for the timing. Um, If the appeals court had taken a few more weeks to work on this opinion, it would really be doubtful for a variety of reasons that uh, there would be a trial this year, at least on these particular charges against President Trump. Just recall, it's only one of four cases uh, where the former president is facing criminal charges. We're talking with Josh Gerstein, reporter with Politico. From reading this opinion, what do you think the Supreme Court is going to do? Will they accept the appeal? I think that the Supreme Court uh, will agree to take up the case and will uh, agree to take it up on an expedited basis. Uh, You know, as a technical matter, there's no circuit split here. We don't have a disagreement between two different circuits. We don't have even a disagreement here between the district court and the appeals court panel or even a disagreement within the appeals court panel because it was unanimous with two Biden appointees joining together with a George H.W. Bush appointee to deliver this decision. Uh, So it doesn't have the usual sort of hallmarks of a case that the Supreme Court would take up to try to resolve differences in the lower courts. However, uh, it is such a novel and momentous question about whether a former president can be prosecuted. It was obviously in the air uh, about five decades ago when uh, then-President Nixon resigned and was pardoned by President Ford. Uh, that pardon wouldn't have been necessary unless there might have been a criminal prosecution of uh, former President uh, Nixon, but the issue never came to a head, and it just seems like something of such magnitude for the country that the justices will feel that they need to you know, provide again, a definitive answer rather than leaving open the possibility that, you know, Trump could be put on trial and then the Supreme Court would only revisit this issue after possibly a conviction. Um, That's the way things normally work in criminal cases. But I think here uh, the justices will probably be inclined to try to give a, a clear answer before a trial takes place. As you have looked over this decision, did anything strike you as sort of interesting or, as you put it, novel that uh, that stands out for people who may not read the entire decision? Well, I mean, the the critical thing here is, you know, at the arguments, the uh, George H.W. Bush appointee Karen Henderson uh, said that she 
uh, had various questions, sounded a little bit um, at least open to some of the arguments that um, former President Trump was putting forward. But the actual decision is uh, unanimous. It's more than 50 pages. And uh, it's interesting that uh, none of the three judges who were assigned to the panel put their actual names on the decision. Uh, they uh, took about four weeks to render it and therefore are sort of putting this forward as a consensus view. Uh, you also kind of wonder, uh, in light of the various threats we've seen to people in the judicial system um, that have handled Trump-related cases, whether they were hoping to take a bit of the heat off themselves uh, by sort of uh, spreading out responsibility over uh, the three judges. But rest assured, if there had been any sort of dissent, uh, former President Trump would have seized on that immediately. And I think it's pretty significant that there was not. Josh Gerstein, senior legal affairs reporter for Politico. His stories at Politico.com and on X at Josh Gerstein. Thank you very much. Thank you. Anytime. And former President Donald Trump, who's a Republican presidential candidate this year, posting on his Truth Social Network, a president of the United States must have full immunity in order to properly function and do what has to be done for the good of the country. A nation-destroying ruling like this cannot be allowed to stand. If not overturned, as it should be, this decision would terribly injure not only the presidency, but the life, breath, and success of our country. The Supreme Court on Thursday will be hearing oral arguments in the case Donald J. Trump v. Norma Anderson about whether Donald Trump is ineligible to run for president because he violated Section 3 of the Constitution's 14th Amendment, barring certain former elected and appointed officials from holding office if they took part in an insurrection. Colorado Supreme Court has ruled that the attack on the U.S. Capitol January 6, 2021, amounted to an insurrection, and there are similar ballot challenges like this in a couple of dozen states. Today in Washington, over 60 U.S. House Republicans introduced a resolution stating that it is the sense of the House that Donald J. Trump did not engage in insurrection. Here is Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, Republican from New York, the Republican Conference Chair. The American people are smart. They know that the weaponized attacks of radical far-left prosecutors and Joe Biden's Department of Justice against President Donald Trump are nothing more than a targeted political witch hunt used to further their own extreme far-left political agenda and hijack the will of the American people come Election Day. As President Donald Trump continues to dominate in the polls, extreme Democrats will stop at nothing in attempt to prevent President Donald Trump from returning to the White House, and the Democrats are shredding the Constitution in the process. Joe Biden claims that democracy is on the ballot, yet the American people know that it is Joe Biden and Democrats who are openly attacking democracy. I am honored to stand as an original co-sponsor on Congressman Gates's resolution that President Donald Trump did not engage in insurrectional rebellion against the United States. That is a fact. Rogue far-left Democrat operatives are attempting to use this lie to illegally take President Trump off the ballot. This week, the Supreme Court will begin arguments in Trump v. Anderson to determine if liberal activist judges have the right to erase Donald Trump from the ballot, steal the election, and the American people's right to elect our leaders. For the sake of American democracy, I am proud to fight for President Trump and the tens of millions of American patriots who face political persecution. 
Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, Republican from New York, at a news conference with other House Republicans today introducing this resolution. That Supreme Court oral argument on Thursday begins 10 a.m. Eastern. You can listen live here on C-SPAN Radio. From NBC News, President Joe Biden on Tuesday urged Congress to pass a bipartisan package of border security measures and asylum restrictions and blamed former President Trump for being behind the effort to tank it on the Senate floor. Senate is expected to take a procedural vote Wednesday that will require 60 votes to advance the measure, which also includes aid to Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan. President Biden spoke from the White House. For much too long, as you all know, the immigration system has been broken. And it's long past time to fix it. That's why months ago I instructed my team to begin negotiations with a bipartisan group of senators to seriously and finally fix our immigration system. For months now, that's what they've done working around the clock, through the holidays, over the weekends. It's been an extraordinary effort by Senators Lankford, Murphy, and Sinema. The result of all this hard work is a bipartisan agreement that represents the most fair, humane reforms in our immigration system in a long time. And the toughest set of reforms to secure the border ever. Now, all indications are this bill won't even move forward to the Senate floor. Why? A simple reason, Donald Trump, because Donald Trump thinks it's bad for him politically. Therefore, he doesn't even know it helps the, the, the country. He's not for it. He'd rather weaponize this issue than actually solve it. So for the last 24 hours, he's done nothing, I'm told, but reach out to Republicans in the House and the Senate and threaten them and try to intimidate them to vote against this proposal. And it looks like they're caving. Frankly, they owe it to the American people to show some spine and do what they know to be right. So I want to tell the American people what's in this bill and why everyone from the Wall Street Journal to the Border Patrol to the Chamber of Commerce, the United States Chamber of Commerce, support this bill. Because it's going to make the country safer, make the border more secure, treat people more humanely and and fairly, and make legal immigration more efficient and consistent with the values of our nation and our international treaty obligations. It would finally provide the funding that I have repeatedly, repeatedly requested, most recently in October, to actually secure the border. That includes an additional 1,500 border agents and officers to secure the border, to physically secure it. In addition, 100 cutting-edge machines to detect and stop fentanyl at the southwest border. We have that capacity. An additional 100 additional immigration judges to help reduce the year-long asylum backlog. You show up for asylum, and the judge is supposed to talk to you. It takes a year to get that discussion going. This bill would also establish new, efficient, and fair process for the government to consider an asylum claim for those arriving at the border. Today, the process can take five to seven years, as you all know. They show up at the border, get a bracelet, told to come back when called, five to seven years, not in country. That's too long, and it's not rational. President Biden at the White House. The Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican from Kentucky, has come out in favor of this national security supplemental spending package the president talked about, including the U.S. border security provisions. Even as many Senate Republicans are opposing it, The Hill has an article that says at least 19 Senate Republicans oppose the bill. 
and that is more than enough to keep it from reaching the 60 votes needed in the Senate to overcome a filibuster. Today, Senator McConnell telling reporters that the package is effectively dead because even if it passes the Senate, it cannot pass the House. The president came out and he pointedly put the blame on Donald Trump. He said it is Donald Trump's is to blame for the failure of this bill. Was Trump's opposition too much for you to overcome? Well, I've said repeatedly every month I'm not going to get into comments about the race for the presidency among Republicans. I think in the end, even though the product was approved by the the Border Council that endorsed President Trump, most of our members feel that we're not going to be able to make a law here. And if we're not going to be able to make a law, they're reluctant to go forward. There are other parts of this supplemental that are extremely important as well. Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan. We still, in my view, ought to tackle the rest of it because it's important. Not that the border isn't important, but we can't get an outcome. So that's where I think we ought to head. It's up to Senator Schumer to decide how to repackage this if, in fact, we don't go on to it. Senator Schumer says that he worked extensively with you on this package. What do you say to your colleagues who said that you misread your conference in helping to craft this border provisions? I, I followed the instructions of my conference who were insisting that we tackle this in October. I mean, it's actually our side that wanted to tackle the border issue. We started it. Obviously, with a Democratic president and a Democratic Senate, our negotiators had to deal with them. And James Langford, under those situations, did a remarkable job to pick off the Border Council, which supported President Trump, certainly underscores that it was a quality product that that particular union felt would make progress toward making things better. But as I said earlier, Things have changed over the last four months, and it's been made perfectly clear by the speaker that he wouldn't take it up even if we sent it to him. And so I think that's probably why most of our members think we ought to have opposition tomorrow. We'll see. And then move on with the rest of the supplement. Senator Mitch McConnell, Republican from Kentucky, the minority leader, meeting with reporters. The Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat from New York, confirming today that that test vote on the supplemental national security supplemental package aid to Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan and the U.S. border security provisions will happen on Wednesday. Are you concerned that if you aren't able to marshal a bill like this, which everyone agrees is a problem that needs to be addressed, that any sort of bipartisan legislation that you need to work on has any chance of passing in the future? Look, we feel this is so important for the security of America at the border, for the security of Ukraine and Israel. We're going to keep at it. This is not the last Republicans will hear from us. We're going to keep at it. We will have a vote tomorrow. We will move further forward. Stay tuned. Senator Schumer, the majority leader with reporters at his own news conference, the House Speaker Mike Johnson, Republican of Louisiana, reiterated his opposition to the bill. This Sunday, uh, the Senate was supposed to release a uh, supplemental funding bill that we've been waiting on for a couple of months now, and it was supposed to have a border security 
uh, set of provisions in it. That is not what we got. We got a supplemental funding proposal with immigration provisions. It's not a border security bill. It doesn't do uh, anything of the sort. In fact, in our view, after a careful, thoughtful review of this, we believe that if those provisions were to make law, it might actually make the situation worse. Let me give you a couple citations. There's just a few of our of our countless concerns with the bill and the form that it was sent to us. On page 321, for example, the bill expands work authorizations for illegal aliens, threatens American workers' wages, and also acts as another magnet for illegal immigration. It's a pull factor. Um, you, you don't want to tell people around the world to come on in over the border, we'll give you work, and by the way, we'll put most of you on public assistance so that the American taxpayer can use spend billions and billions and billions of dollars to feed, house, and clothe, and educate you. That, that's not the message that, you're, that is helpful to send around the world. On page 116 of the bill, it endorses the Biden administration's catch and release policy, endorses it, by allowing illegals to be, quote, released from fis fiscal, physical custody, unquote. Um, it, instead of uh, uh, deciding, uh, uh, you know, asylum on a case-by-case on a -case basis, as the law specifically states currently, what they would do is just engage in more of these large-scale releases. The shutdown authority in, in the bill, you know, you've heard some things said about that, it, but it's riddled with loopholes. You, you might not have heard that part. It gives Secretary Mayorkas, who is, of course, one of the chief architects of the catastrophe that we're all dealing with, the authority to undermine that. You can, you can find that on pages 218 and 219 of the, of the bill. Of course, this administration has shown the American people that it will exploit any measure to keep the border open. And the lead Democrat negotiator of this bill made clear to everybody under this bill, quote, the border never closes. That's what he said, Senator Murphy. In sum, the bill does not secure the border, and, and it does not prevent illegals from coming into our country. House Speaker Mike Johnson, Republican from Louisiana, at a news conference today with other House Republican leaders. Again, the first test vote on this national security supplemental spending package that includes the U.S. border security immigration provisions is in the Senate on Wednesday. 60 votes will be needed to advance it. The House today debated a resolution to impeach the Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas on two articles accusing him of committing high crimes and misdemeanors for his handling of the southern border. On the House floor, in favor, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, Republican of Georgia. Alejandro Mayorkas is guilty of aiding and abetting the complete invasion of our country by criminals, gang members, terrorists, murderers, rapists, and over 10 million people from over 160 countries into American communities all across the United States. His willful refusal to secure the border has bankrupted communities, closed down U.S. schools that our children attend, drowned hospitals, and incapacitated law enforcement while empowering criminal cartels and illegal aliens. My Democrat colleagues argue that one cannot be impeached over policy differences. Well, I argue that breaking our laws is more than just policy differences. 300 dead Americans every day from fentanyl poisoning is more than just a policy difference. It's murder. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, Republican from Georgia, on the House floor, there are two articles of impeachment. One accuses the secretary of willfully neglecting current immigration and border security laws. The second, breaching the public trust by testifying before Congress that the border is secure when he knew that it wasn't. Opposing the articles today, Congresswoman Dina Titus, Democrat from Nevada. 
You know, considering this impeachment resolution is the fastest I've seen the House GOP move all session. That's because there's been no collection of evidence, only the manipulation of it. There's been no meaningful bipartisan engagement, only partisan political stunts. And there's been no due process. Instead, it's a deliberate disregard for the basis of our legal system. It has no constitutional precedent or basis, no real backing by Senate GOP counterparts are gonna hold the trial, no meaningful engagement with policy, and no support from respected legal scholars, political nor former DHS directors. History will remember this for what it is, an appeasement of the most extreme members of the MAGA base, and put very simply, the brown nosing of a man with 91 indictments, several convictions, and two impeachments. Congresswoman Dina Titus, Democrat from Nevada, on the House floor. The House defeated the resolution to impeach the Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas by a vote of 214 to 216. Four Republicans voted no. Ken Buck of Colorado, Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin, Tom McClintock of California, and Blake Moore of Utah, although Congressman Moore did so for procedural reasons. It allowed him to file a motion to reconsider for a revote in the future. Congressman McClintock explained in a speech on the House floor. Secretary Mayorkas is guilty of maladministration of our immigration laws on a cosmic scale. But we know that's not grounds for impeachment because the American founders specifically rejected it. They didn't want political disputes to become impeachments because that would shatter the separation of powers that vests the enforcement of the laws with the president, no matter how bad a job he does. Cabinet secretaries can't serve two masters. They can be impeached for committing a crime relating to their office, but not for carrying out presidential policy. This border crisis can't be fixed by replacing one left-wing official with another. It can only be fixed by the American people at the ballot box by replacing this administration with one committed to securing our borders, defending our country, and upholding the rule of law. Americans are already coming to that conclusion. And I'm afraid that stunts like this don't help. Congressman Tom McClintock, Republican from California. Story from The Hill. House Democrats are lining up in opposition to a Republican bill providing new military funding for Israel, but not without a lot of internal agonizing. At an animated closed-door meeting in the Capitol basement Tuesday morning, House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries and other top leaders told the caucus that they'll oppose the bill when it hits the floor later in the day. We are prepared to support any serious bipartisan effort in connection with the special relationship between the United States and Israel, our closest ally in the Middle East. Congressman Jeffries, along with Congresswoman Catherine Clark, Congressman Pete Aguilar, wrote to Democrats in a letter released shortly after the meeting. They went on, unfortunately, the standalone legislation introduced by House Republicans over the weekend at the 11th hour without notice or consultation is not being offered in good faith. The Hill article notes that position aligns with President Biden, who has vowed to veto the proposal if it reaches his desk. The bill before the House is $17.6 billion in emergency aid to Israel, and unlike a previous bill that passed the House, does not have an offsetting cut. This is Washington Today. From Reuters, the Palestinian militant group Hamas said on Tuesday it had delivered its response to proposed ceasefire deal for Gaza. And the United States said it believed an agreement was possible. Details of Hamas's response were not immediately revealed, but Qatar, 
which helped mediate the proposal that was passed on to Hamas last week and would also involve the release of hostages held in Gaza, said the reply had made Doha optimistic. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, on a lightning tour of the Middle East, said Washington was reviewing Hamas's response and that he would discuss it with Israeli officials when he visits the country on Wednesday. That was from Reuters. Secretary Blinken held a joint news conference in Doha with the Qatari prime minister. Why it seems too hard for the United States to end the war on Gaza, or at least to push for a ceasefire, are you, uh, or are we going to witness uh, soon a ceasefire? Is it going to be signed here or true signed here in Qatar or agreed here in Qatar in Doha? And uh, lastly, before you travel to um, Israel and meet uh, Netanyahu, uh, I'm going to ask the same question that Politico asked today. Is Mr. Anthony Blinken too nice to be Secretary of State? The best path forward, the most effective path forward right now to get an extended period of calm um, and to work toward an end to the conflict is through an agreement on the hostages. And that's what we're intensely focused on with our partners here in Qatar, uh, Egypt, uh, working uh, with Israel. Uh, And of course, now that we have the response from Hamas to the proposal that was put on the table uh, a week or so ago, uh, we're going to be very intensely focused on uh, on that. And again, that offers the, the prospect of extended calm, hostages out, more assistance in. Uh, that would clearly be beneficial to everyone. Uh, and I think that offers the best path forward. But uh, there's a lot of work to be done to, uh, to achieve it. We're very focused on doing, uh, doing that work. Now, of course, as we've uh, said all along, All of this could have been over yesterday, last month, three months ago, four months ago, first of all, if Hamas had not committed the atrocities of October 7th, and second, after that, had they stopped hiding behind civilians, had they put down their weapons, um, and uh, had they uh, surrendered. But that, of course, has not happened. So the best path now is to see if we can make real this renewed hostage agreement. Um, I'll let others uh, speak to uh, my character. Um, And uh, all I can say is that uh, most people who assume the position that I have the great privilege of assuming now uh, don't get there by being nice all the time. Secretary of State Antony Blinken at a joint news conference in Qatar with the Qatari Prime Minister. President Joe Biden at the White House was asked by a reporter about the possibility of a deal with Hamas to release more hostages. There is some movement, and I don't want to, I don't want to, well, maybe choose my words. There's some movement, there's been a response from the, uh, the, the, there's been a response from the opposition, but, um, it, it, yes, I'm sorry, from Hamas, but it seems to be uh, a little over the top. We're not sure where it is. There's a continuing negotiation right now. 
President Biden at the White House. A New York Times article reads that more than a fifth of the remaining hostages being held in Gaza are dead, according to an internal assessment conducted by the Israeli military. Israeli intelligence officers have concluded that at least 32 of the remaining 136 hostages captured by Hamas and its allies on October 7th have died since the start of the war, according to a confidential assessment that was reviewed by the New York Times, and the families of the 32 hostages whose deaths are confirmed have been informed. Washington Today continues in a moment. Hi, this is Rachel from C-SPAN's podcast team. I'd like to introduce you to one of the producers here at C-SPAN, my colleague Sean. Thanks, Rachel. If you're a fan of Washington Today, we think you'll also like our evening newsletter, Word for Word, which brings you a recap of the day's most important political and policy events delivered right to your inbox. Read about what happened on Capitol Hill and at the White House and watch video highlights featuring the day's newsmakers. Hear them word for word. Join our community of informed listeners and viewers. Head over to cspan.org slash connect and subscribe to Word for Word today. Thanks for listening and staying connected with Word for Word. Subscribe now at cspan.org slash connect. Thank you. Welcome back to Washington Today, available as a podcast on the C-SPAN Now mobile app. It's free and wherever you find your podcasts. An article at News Nation, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen touted the historic recovery of the economy under President Joe Biden during her Tuesday appearance before Congress. She said over the past three years, the Biden administration has driven historic recovery. GDP growth is strong and inflation has declined significantly. We have also achieved a healthy labor market. She also emphasized the Financial Stability Oversight Council's focus on addressing risks from the banking sector and non-bank financial institutions, climate-related events, cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, and digital assets. She testified before the House Financial Services Committee. Some of the questions to the secretary focused on the Federal Reserve's proposal to increase large banks' minimum capital requirements and its potential effects on the economy. It goes by the shorthand Basel III Endgame. First, questions from Congressman Frank Lucas, Republican from Oklahoma. Back in 2010, I sat on the Dodd-Frank Conference Committee, where there was bipartisan support to not disadvantage end users, like farmers, ranchers, small businesses. This has a long history of broad bipartisan support. Unfortunately, both of the proposals from the Federal Reserve will drive up the cost of hedging for end users and undermine the long-standing work done by Congress in this committee. And this is just one example of how the Fed's proposal moves us in the wrong direction. Secretary Yellen, at some point in the months ahead, the banking regulators will vote on a final rule. When we last discussed Basel Endgame, you said that Treasury would have the opportunity to provide feedback on this proposal. Given Treasury's mission, which is to maintain a strong economy and promote economic growth, Has Treasury provided feedback to the Fed, number one? And number two, are you confident that the proposal will not undermine the resilience of the U.S. capital markets that are so critical to the economy? So I'm not aware that Treasury has provided any formal feedback to the Fed um, on uh, the Basel regulations. As you know, they've received many comments Um, expressing concern about a number of different proposals um, that were embodied in the Basel III package. And I know that all of the banking agencies that publish that are considering um, how to respond to those 
uh, comments and concerns in trying to craft a final rule. Well, are you concerned that the, uh, the proposal will undermine the resilience of the U.S. capital markets? Um, I'm not going to take a position on the details of the rule. I would just say again that um, I believe that there should be strong capital and liquidity standards um, to ensure that these institutions operate in a safe and sound manner. Um, but it's up to the banking agencies to evaluate the specifics. So it's fair to say that whatever concerns might be at Treasury don't rise to the point of providing feedback, okay? Congressman Frank Lucas, Republican from Oklahoma, questioning the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen at the House Financial Services Committee hearing today. Also bringing up this issue, Congresswoman Maxine Waters, Democrat from California. I want you to know that the mega banks are working overtime to try and kill the bank capital proposal, claiming, among other things, that it will limit their ability to make loans to communities of color that they already rarely serve and routinely have discriminated against over the years. But capital is not something that's locked away, but rather it is a source of funds that banks can redeploy. In fact, research shows that better capitalized banks actually lend more, not less, to consumers in both good times and bad. Secretary Yellen, will lending come to a halt if regulators implement their capital proposal? Uh, Did you hear similar industry attacks when you were at the Fed helping implement the Dodd-Frank post-crisis reforms? Well, I think what we found during that time was implementing strong capital liquidity and um, risk management rules led to a stronger banking system that was better able to meet the needs of borrowers throughout the country. And I think we saw the benefit of that um, when the pandemic struck and um, the bank, well, there were many financial stability risks that did materialize, the banking system was strong and able to meet the credit needs um, of the country's businesses and households. The Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen questioned by Congresswoman Maxine Waters, Democrat from California. You can find today's House Financial Services Committee hearing with the Secretary archived at our website, cspan.org. Wall Street today, the Dow up 141, NASDAQ up 11, S&P also up 11. Credit card debt in the United States increased by $50 billion in the fourth quarter of 2023. According to recent findings from the New York Federal Reserve, total credit card debt now $1.13 trillion. It's the highest balance in about 20 years. Story from Axios, the head of the Federal Aviation Administration told lawmakers on Tuesday he will use any authority available to him to hold Boeing accountable for any noncompliance that contributed to last month's 737 MAX 9 accident during an Alaska Airlines flight. FAA Administrator Michael Whitaker told the House Subcommittee on Aviation that the agency will not grant Boeing any additional manufacturing expansions for the MAX until it's resolved quality control issues. Whitaker reiterated the FAA's plan to increase oversight on Boeing after the door plug incident, saying 
It will have boots on the ground closely scrutinizing and monitoring production and manufacturing activities. That story from Axios. C-SPAN covered this hearing. Here is the FAA Administrator, Michael Whitaker, before the House Transportation and Infrastructure Subcommittee. Question by Congressman Colin Allred, Democrat from Texas. I know that we're all united uh, in wanting to restore confidence uh, in our air travel. You know, when we have some Americans out, uh, travel quite a bit, as, as we all do, and I was sitting next to some folks the other day who were saying that they were filtering out in their travel plans uh, the planes that they think are unsafe. And when we have that, uh, we know that we have to respond. Uh, and so we have to respond together. Uh, here on our responsibility is to help you uh, to ensure that we remain the gold standard. And I'm, you certainly have my commitment on that. And I wanted to just ask you about, in reference to Boeing's internal oversight, you say that it's time to uh, re-examine the delegation of authority and assess any associated safety risks. Can you discuss how the FAA intends to change oversight at the manufacturing sites uh, to meet this goal? So what we're, what we're doing, uh, we're doing a number of things. We're doing an audit of the manufacturing process we are looking into what is delegated, what could be overseen by a third party. Um, and we have inspectors on the ground talking to employees to understand sort of the ground truth, if you will, of what's happening, what the pressures are. Um, and based on that outcome, we will look at putting together a program to continue to add uh, direct oversight to what otherwise was sort of an auditing approach. So a much more hands-on approach going forward. That'll be, that'll be really designed after this six-week audit period is, is finished and we have a better understanding of what's going on in the factory. And do you need any further authorizations or support from the Congress in order to do that? Is there anything in the uh, FAA reauthorization that would assist in that? Well, I, I do appreciate you saying that the willingness to work together. I do think with a, a problem like this, we all need to be rowing in the same direction. Congress, Boeing, the airlines, uh, the FAA. I think we all want the same outcome, which is safe airplanes. Um, so we, we will certainly come back with you on that. I think we do anticipate needing to hire more inspectors. Uh, the oversight before was a different skill set, I and mean, we need folks who are trained to be on the ground and, and much more hands-on. Uh, so we do anticipate some hiring. I think we have the authorizing authority to do that. We may need to find the money to do it, but I think that'll be a top priority, and we'll, we'll either come, come back for that or we'll make it work one way or the other. Because there's an inherent tension here uh, between uh, you know, competition, the need to you know, rush products to market. Um, I remember back when we dealt with the MAX initially, a few years back, some of the internal discussions about needing to compete uh, when you're also your own regulator or your own, uh, doing your own internal reviews. Uh, and so it seems to me that we have to have uh, more on our side in terms of independent investigators uh, and I recognize the, the cost associated with that, but I think that uh, for the uh, American flying public, it's a cost that's worth us bearing in terms of making sure that we don't have another incident like what we had. Uh, and so uh, in order to have uh, a truly safe system, it seems to me that we can't rely on uh, our, the manufacturers them, themselves to be their own um, watchdogs. Is that something you would agree with? I, I certainly agree that, that what's the, the current system is not working because it's not delivering safe aircraft. So we have to make some changes to that. And I think we also have to look at the culture. Uh, to your point, incentives drive behavior. And I think maybe the, we need to look at the incentives uh, to make sure safety is getting the appropriate 
uh, first rung of consideration that it deserves. Yeah, I mean, I played in the NFL, and if uh, if they'd let us be our own referees, <laughs> you know, I've, I've, every every time an offensive lineman tried to block me, it would have been a holding call. You know what I'm saying? So uh, I think. This is certainly something we should work on. Congressman Colin Allred, Democrat from Texas, questioning the FAA Administrator Michael Whitaker before today's House Subcommittee on Aviation. CNN reports that investigators from the National Transportation Safety Board on Tuesday said evidence shows four bolts that hold the door plug in place on on the Boeing 737 MAX 9 were missing at the time of last month's blowout on Alaska Airlines flight. 1282. CNN goes on. The bombshell new finding from federal investigators comes one month and a day after the January 5th incident that triggered a 19-day emergency grounding of all MAX 9s and reignited scrutiny of Boeing following the fatal MAX 8 crashes of 2018 and 19. Congressman Anthony Desposito, Republican of New York, posting today, My thoughts and prayers are with Toby Keith and his family. Following 9-11, Mr. Keith's music helped New York and America find its spirit and strength again, and his contributions to American culture will never be forgotten. Toby Keith, a country music star, died of stomach cancer, according to a statement from his family. He was 62 years old. Back in 2009, Toby Keith was at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., covered by C-SPAN. It was just before his latest trip to Iraq and Afghanistan to entertain U.S. troops as part of a USO tour. And he spoke about the political climate in the U.S. at the time. I'm not a political guy. I never have been. Um, It really freaks people out when they find out that I'm a Democrat. It really does, because they've read so much uh, lies and stuff in the press that they just assume that I'm a right-wing uh, loco, you know? And, and uh, it, it's, it's simply not true. I'm, this isn't a pity party for me, and I'm not up here going to defend myself. I'll stand firm on whatever, uh, whatever I've done in the past. I'm not sorry I wrote the song. I'm not sorry I'm patriotic, and I never apologize for any of that. Ever. Um, The the polarization that happens in this country is boiling to the point to where I feel like living in middle America that it's, it feels like a civil war to me. It is, it is, there's so much hate on both ends that it's hard to get anything accomplished in this country. Even though I come from a family that's never had one Republican on my family tree, ever, they still know right from wrong, and they still defend their country, and they still, they still understand the sacrifices that are made by people that go do these things. Country music star Toby Keith at the National Press Club in 2009 before heading over to the Middle East on a USO tour to entertain the troops. He was likely referring to his song written after the 9-11 terror attacks in 2001, courtesy of the Red, White, and Blue, The Angry American was the title. Toby Keith has passed away at the age of 62 from stomach cancer. And today, First Lady Jill Biden tweeting, Cancer truly touches us all. Rest in peace, Toby Keith. And then love and affection emojis. Thanks for listening to Washington Today. Sign up for C-SPAN's evening newsletter, Word for Word. It's free, and get the stories making headlines in Washington emailed to you every day. Subscribe at cspan.org slash connect. Have a good night.